into the Word. Lord, we come to familiar themes, the themes of Scripture that talk about your first coming, the first advent. We pray, our Father, that you, by your Spirit, would illumine us to these themes in ways that cause us, Lord, to be drawn into their truths in ways that avoid just merely looking at facts, avoid the thought of being bored by these truths. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be stirred, that we would see the implications of them for our own hearts, and that we would see Christ clearly as we look into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This was the week where much attention was given to an annual event in the New York City area, the lighting of the Christmas tree of all places at Rockefeller Center. How many of you happened to see that coverage on that or you knew that that was happening this past week? Anybody? Okay, some of you, many of you. Yes, there's always this huge crowd that gathers there to observe this phenomenon uh, in person. And then there's, uh, did you, can you get over this? They have, a lo- they have a television stations broadcast an entire, what is it, half an hour or 40, uh, an hour of program all geared around the lighting of the tree, of course, these 45,000 LED lights on this massive tree. Now, I'm convinced that is just one example to prove the fact that glowing lights fascinate us, don't they? I mean, no one that I know of ever attends and makes a big deal over the darkening of the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center, right? Have you ever heard anybody make any kind of big announcement about that or have a TV special about turning the lights off on the tree at Rockefeller Center. I think all of us, uh, many of us, find it very, uh, one of our, I guess, uh, patterns of the celebrating the season is to go around in our cars and look at various tree, uh, various homes that have been decorated with illuminated lights on their homes. I found one the other night in which I looked at it. It's actually uh, opposite of Renown Street, which is where we pull in off of Stony Brook Road, and there's, there's lights along the gutters and the lines, and they change colors. It's crazy. I mean, it's the same lights, but they're green for a second, and then they're blue, and then they're yellow. Anyway, so we like looking at these lights. Again, I don't know too many people that like to go around and look at darkened houses with no lights, but that's something we find fascinating. And I would say it's fair to say that we find great delight in shining, sparkling lights at night. Visual light truly is a wonderful thing. And the Christian faith speaks much about the concept of light contrasted with darkness. It's used as a metaphor, often in Scripture. Time after time, you read about light as opposed to darkness. The kingdom of darkness is contrasted in the Bible with the kingdom of light. And in the book of Acts, we read that as Paul explained the gospel, he affirmed that that those who through faith and repentance, that a person can turn from darkness to light. And then he puts it this way, and from dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. The contrast between dark and light. In his first epistle, Peter celebrated the fact that the good news that God calls his own out of darkness into his marvelous light. He talks about it. He uses the word marvelous, wonderful light. So this morning, I want us to 
um, continue, not continue, well, we're going to begin a, an Advent series on the second Sunday of Advent, uh, remaining Sundays, looking at this theme, the light of Christmas. And I'm breaking it down week by week into thinking about the results of Christ's first coming and the anticipation and promise of his second coming. And I want to do so today by primarily starting with the passage in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you want to find your Bible, the Pew Bible is page 824, or in your own Bible, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll actually read a verse of chapter 8 here in just a second. But I want to just briefly make some observations about God and how he has taken his own initiative to bring light to people who dwell in darkness. So my first point is the wonder of God's promises. God graciously fulfilled his sovereign plan to shine his light on those who dwell in darkness. The Bible records a number of references to people who dwell in darkness. One of those passages is found in chapter 8 of Isaiah. If you look just a few verses prior to chapter 9, you'll notice that there is a strong admonition found in these verses in which there's a warning here. When God's prophet Isaiah is speaking to the people of that day, he's warning them, listen, stop ignoring the message that we're bringing to you from God. They were consulting apparently mediums. They were consulting wizards and people who were involved in the occult, he says in verse, uh, verse 19 of chapter 8. And so the prophet Isaiah is warning them. He says, listen here, if you keep ignoring this message and you keep uh, shunning the light of God's revelation, his message to you, then don't be surprised if the outcome is not going to be so good for you. He warns them that one of the consequences of ignoring the light of God's revelation is that you will be in darkness. Look what he says in verse 22 of chapter 8 in Isaiah. Then they, this is those people who ignore the message of God, they will look to the earth. That is, they're not going to look to God anymore. All they have left is, is themselves and what's in the earth. They will behold distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Now, that doesn't sound like a very pleasant outcome. You see, the biblical writers often will use this metaphor of darkness to describe the fallout, the consequences of those who refuse to listen to God's warnings and follow God's ways. And that seems to agree with other ways in which the Bible, biblical writers talk about people who shun God and go their own way. For example, we read in Proverbs 2, those who leave the paths of uprightness, that is sinners, who leave the path of uprightness to walk in ways of darkness. That's what sinners do. They leave God's ways and they go into their own paths of darkness. Also in chapter 4 of Proverbs, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In other words, they, they're not, they don't have a lot of discernment. They don't really see what's going on, morally speaking and spiritually speaking. And Jesus even made a comment about people who ignore the truth about um, God and how he has revealed himself. They say they walk, people 
he said, people who ignore God's ways, they walk in darkness and they do not know where they're going. Obviously, all of us to some level have experienced this. All of us on some level have responded to God in this way by not fully heeding what he is saying to us. In our own foolish refusal to yield to God's divine right to demand obedience as our creator, because God does have the demand, divine right to demand obedience from us, he is the owner of everything, and oftentimes we've said, no, I want to I be my own king. I want to run my own life. I want to do it my way. The Bible says that in doing that kind of response to God, our hearts become darkened. Romans 1. Assuming that we know better than God, many of us have found ourselves valuing what we find in this world more than we find with God, and thereby we exhibit darkened understanding according to Ephesians 4. Our thinking becomes darkened and we no longer can see and understand spiritual truth. I wonder if many of you have understood that if spiritual light is devalued in your life, if you've come to diminish the value of any kind of spiritual truth in your life from God, you find that spiritual darkness around you becomes more intense and the more intense that spiritual darkness becomes, the more you re realize you're in danger. I wonder how many of you have ever toured a cave. How many of you have been spelunking in, a, in an established cave? I don't expect you to go in and discover your own. But uh, when you go in a cave, of course, you're always descending down. Obviously, most of the time you go down. And uh, we had a guide one time. We went into this cave. And, you know, you, know, you meander around in stalactites and stalagmites and all those things. And so... They've already made it to accommodate people to walk through there safely. So they have lighting everywhere. They have stairs where needed and different things. And this particular tour guide, he brought us to the point where you could tell we've entered into something that was sort of a large room around the corner. He kept describing it. He says, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to walk slowly. It's going to get progressively darker and darker. He says, and then when I have you, I'm going to tell you to stand still. He says, I'm going to turn all of the lights off. Don't panic. Well, that's exactly what he did. We walked a few steps, came around a corner. The lights were behind us. We couldn't tell what was in the current room we were in, and then shut the lights off. Now, how dark do you think it was in that cave? It was absolute darkness. There was the absence of all light. Nobody turned their cell phones on. It wasn't one of those things. You know, it was completely darkened. You could not see your hand in front of your face. And thereby, in that darkness, I had no sense of direction. I couldn't tell you where anything was at that point, All based on maybe hearing some voices. But I didn't know distance. I didn't know what was ahead of me. I didn't know what was behind me. I didn't know anything. You feel vulnerable. You feel afraid when you're in absolute darkness. You're cut off from the light. And I think that is one of the reasons that Bible writers use the term darkness as describing a condition of being in spiritual darkness. What does that mean? It means that we are at odds with God, that we are in a place of great spiritual danger and spiritual insecurity. 
so that we come to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Get your Bible open there. You'll notice the prophet alludes to the fact that those who defy God, those who refuse to yield to God and His rule and His reign, they will face what? They face gloom and anguish. God views them not in a sort of um, neutral way. He views them with contempt because they have defied Him and His authority. When people continue to reject God and his rightful position of authority. It gets very serious if they continue in that position. Jesus said, even though you might be a religious person, you might be a person who has interest in religious things, Jesus warned many of the Jewish religious people around him of that day. He said in Matthew chapter 8 that those who reject his authority who refuse to bend their knee and acknowledge him as being from God and being truly God in human flesh, he said they would be cast out into utter darkness. Utter darkness. And then he goes on to describe a place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the ultimate consequence for those who do not love God. This is the ultimate consequence of those who prefer to live their life apart from God. And therefore, this is a description of what it means to be spend eternity in utter spiritual darkness means to be cut off from God. To be left to yourself. To have you by yourself without any restraint of evil. Therefore, you give yourself into doing whatever you want to do, and you become a miserable person forever and ever, cut off from God and all that's good. And therefore, there is loss of joy. There is rage that develops in the heart of people who are in helpless despair. And that is the description of those who reject God. But I want to turn a corner here and just remind you of, again, the wonders of the good news that we find in Scripture. And that is in 1 John chapter 1, John describes God in this way. He says, God is light. That's his nature. And that in God, there is no darkness at all. What a wonderful way to describe God using the metaphor of this light and dark. That is, God has nothing in common with darkness, moral, uh, moral corruption, any kind of evil in him. And therefore, as a one who is holy, one who is perfect, one who is sinless, God could have said, I'm going to cut myself off from any and all who walk in darkness. I'm going to have nothing to do with them because I am a God who is light. But I want you to be aware again as we think of this thing through that God is a merciful and gracious God. He willingly chooses to bring his light into our, dark, our darkened hearts, our little darkened world. Think with me about the wonders of this message here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. God promises those who deserve to be banished into outer darkness he promises them to shine his light on them. Look at verse 1 and 2. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. 
But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Gal, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. Quote, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The light will shine on them. Now, it sounds like an obscure promise, but the promise God made to those who dwell in darkness was to send a great light. It's His light. And this light, as you keep reading that passage in chapter 9 of Isaiah, and I don't, I've preached uh, many a, a sermon out of that text in or previous uh, Advent seasons, but it's a person. The light is a person. He goes on to talk about, verse 6, a son's given a child whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Clearly, he's talking about the light that would overcome the darkness and bring hope and peace is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now you say, well, how can you verify that? How do you know that really to be true? Aren't you reading something in the text here? Well, the promise was made 500 years before Jesus was born. But what I find interesting is to see how those people, the eyewitnesses, the people who lived at the time in which Jesus was born, they saw him, they viewed him as the fulfillment of this promise. So turn with me now in your New Testament, just for a second, to page 1215 in your pew Bible, which is Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Here we come with the eyewitness testimony of Zechariah, who for a while was unable to speak. He had uh, some amazing things happen in his own life, him and his wife, and had a miraculous child there, John the Baptist. But as he's acknowledging this amazing birth of his son, John the Baptist, he goes into another explanation further because John the Baptist clearly was one who was going to announce the coming of the Lord. We read in verses 78 and 79 of Luke 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think that what he's saying here is that it's not John the Baptist clearly that's going to be this sunrise. He's pointing further to the coming of Christ, which he knew was coming up very quickly uh, through his, uh, all the events that had transpired there. You can read all that in Luke 1. But look at this, this metaphorical name, sunrise. Isn't it interesting he would use that term? Zechariah sees Jesus as the one who would come overcoming the night of sin, the darkness of sin. Jesus would pierce with his rays of righteousness the damning demands of the law. It is Jesus with his beams of light which would break through this darkness as he inaugurates the kingdom of God, pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And it starts small, but eventually it begins to shine brighter and brighter. And it's interesting to see how Zechariah concludes this reflection on Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to shine light on those who dwell in darkness. Notice this, this part of this verse here in verse 79. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Another way of describing this peace, the Hebrew word was shalom. Here, as image bearers of God, God designed us to live in light. 
to live in communion with him. That's the way we've been designed to live. And this was the experience in the earlier parts of the existence of Adam and Eve. They lived in communion with God. They lived in light prior to the time in which they defied God's righteous reign and their hearts uh, rebelled against God. But they enjoyed during those times prior to that a sense of true shalom, true wholeness, true harmony and well-being. Recently I heard about the Steinway and Sons in uh, Brooklyn, I think it is, where they have their own huge factory where they manufacture pianos. It's a, a family that came over a long, long time ago in the 1800s, and they still are in business, and they manufacture very elaborate, finely tuned pianos, and they are very careful in how they craft these pianos because when they're played by a well-trained concert pianist, this piano, as it's been designed and been manufactured by Steinway & Sons, it will experience, in a sense, shalom, a sense of wholeness. It works correctly. When the keys are played, the corresponding hammers are going to strike these accurately tuned strings, and the notes that are played on the keyboard will produce perfectly pitched corresponding notes and tones. But a piano that is badly neglected, a piano like the one that sits in our living room, it weighs a ton, it collects dust, and it sits there. It is out of tune terribly to the point where it cannot be restored back into being in tune, so we don't try to do that anymore. It is just, imagine a, a piano that's out of tune, that cannot be tuned, where the keys don't work, where the pedals no longer function, it's fair to say that piano is no longer in a state of shalom. You see, Steinway & Sons designs their pianos to operate in a certain way. And when they do not function as they were designed, the piano is out of order. And I would dare say that we were designed to know, to enjoy, to love, and to delight in God. That's the way we've been designed. And when we are not living in correspondence with the way which we've been designed, we lose out the sense of shalom. And Jesus enters this dark world to rescue people like us who need to have shalom, who need to see this shalom brought about by his light into our darkness. Jesus did this by entering into our darkness. I was reading uh, this week John 13 in which John recounts the events at the Passover meal in which he's celebrating with his disciples. And he, he's gathered there in these hours before he dies on the cross. It's very interesting to read what's going on there. If you read carefully verses 2 and verse 27 of John 13, we read that Satan enters into Judas. It is Satan who is clearly at work here as Judas prepares to exit the door, excuses himself. He goes to conspire with the high priest to what? Betray Jesus. Give him over to the authorities. And the forces of evil are conspiring to destroy the only, quote-unquote, sunrise from on high. <laughs> it's a great spiritual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light here. 
Here's the only one who can bring ruined sinners out of darkness into marvelous light. And so John adds the comment in chapter 13, verse 30. He says, and it was night. What's he saying there? He's saying, metaphorically speaking, there's a lot of evil going on. There's a backdrop. These moments were the darkest spiritual moments of human history. And Jesus, in a very short time later, was betrayed by Judas, and then he lays down his life in utter shame and disgrace on a Roman cross. And it is not without significance that during the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, that halfway through those six hours, at 12 noon, darkness fell upon the land for the remaining three hours until Jesus yielded up his spirit on that cross. It is during these last three hours, toward the end of it, in which Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One commentator has said, that is a statement that speaks of this cosmic blackness that hints at this deep judgment that's taking place. At that moment which Jesus is beginning to taste the, the, the drops of the wrath of God that are being poured out from that cup of wrath. Wrath that you and I deserved as Jesus enters into our darkness so that we might know light. Jesus was bearing the punishment for the sins of his people in order to deliver them from outer darkness in which we deserve to receive so that we might be delivered into the light of full reconciliation with God. So I ask the question, before I move on to the practical things I want us to think about in this text, what is the condition of your soul today? You say, well, I must admit, if you really knew me, if you really knew what goes on with the real me, I would have to admit that my soul is darkened by a sense of hypocrisy. I'm one way here at church, but I'm really another way on my own. There's a lot of duplicity in my life and heart. There's a sense of defiance in my life. I know there's area of sin in which I don't care what God thinks or anybody else. I'm going to do what I want to do. My friend, may I remind you of that darkness will only lead you to further danger. Come to the light. Come to the light. Come to Christ. There may be others among us who have the darkness of despair and doubt. You're wondering, is there really enough that Christ has done, that he could cleanse the darkness of my soul. There's so much guilt, there's so much things and regrets from the past. And the answer is, my friend, the light is greater than your darkness if you'll come to it and yield to Christ. So my call is to come to Christ. He is the one who delivers people who dwell in darkness by his great light. That is the glory of the gospel. Come and believe upon him and receive him and repent from your sin. Now in the moments ahead, I'd like us to take some real uh, practical thinking about this truth about what God has done from Isaiah chapter 9, and I'd like us to think about the number, point number two, the implications of God's promises. The implications. What difference does it make? First is this, God is trustworthy. The promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah was not fulfilled promptly. 
you got to understand that. We're talking 500 years, at least, between the time Isaiah wrote that prophecy, more like 600 probably is more accurate, and they say Christ was born in 3 B.C. or something, but anyway, toward the early part of the first century. God did not go back on his word. It may have seemed like that for a while, but he didn't. God is completely reliable. His promises, like checks, will always be cashed in the bank of heaven. None of them will ever bounce. Jesus, the light of the world, did indeed shine on people who lived in darkness. And therefore, a call to us today is to no longer sit in the darkness of despair and gloom and anguish of soul. Know that Jesus' promises to you in the gospel are 100% reliable. If you look at 1 John chapter 1, maybe you should make your way there in your Bible. And again, underline, these are the promises of the gospel. 1 John chapter 1, he says this, verse 7. If we walk that is, live as a pattern of life. If we live in the light as God himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Notice the active verb there, cleanses. That is, continually, ongoingly. Every time you think you've really messed up, even as a Christian, you can say, can I really talk to God and can I really ever come back and know His grace? Yes, that's the promise right there. Walking in the light means you've repented of your sin and you agree with God and you say, okay, I'm turning from that. Yes, you can know complete forgiveness and cleansing. As if He didn't say enough already, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful. He, that is, He's reliable. He's trustworthy. He is just and righteous. He cannot punish sin twice. Christ has already paid for your sin. He's not going to make you pay for it again. He is just and righteous to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from, not some, not most, all unrighteousness. Jesus rescues sinners from the darkness of our damning sins so that we might what? Enjoy abiding peace with him. But how is it that so many of us don't know that peace? How many is it, how, why is it that so many of us don't know joy? How many, how, why is it that so many of us are not hopeful and confident of God's promises? I brought with me one of these uh, Christmas gift of years ago. You remember what this is? It's not a club, although you could use it as such. It would be quite uncomfortable to receive a blow with it. It's not something you put up into your living room just to look at and enjoy as a piece of, of fine craftsmanship, although it is such. It really is well made. But it is a very long-lasting, effective flashlight, the mag light. And if you were given one of these when you went into that cave, and the guy, for whatever reason, is, turns the lights off, he can't find the switch, and you're standing here with this thing, what are you going to do? You're going to use this to find your way around just by banging on things? Is that what you're going to do? No, the first thing I do is you push that little button, turn the light on, and so you could see what's going on around you. I'm convinced that many of us are not taking God seriously as work because we're not reading the Word. You've got to turn the light on. It is the Word of God that is light to our path. 
It is the Word of God that illumines and helps us see and understand the world that God has made and understand us and understand who God is and His ways. We've got to be in the Word in order to have light shining and therefore to find encouragement for your soul that oftentimes doubts God and has a hard time trusting Him. The Bible says, where, is, where are you going to get faith? You say, my faith is so weak, I'm having a hard time trusting God regarding this, that, and whatever. I'm so anxious, I'm so worried about this. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word about Christ. Romans 10 tells us. So, encouragement to our souls is to get into the word and walk in light of the gospel promises. Secondly, God is not... Ob God is not under obligation to bring his light to those who dwell in darkness. Did you know that? He's not obligation to do that. And so therefore, point number two here is, or B, is God is gracious. God is gracious. He is doing this because he's so gracious. I've been thinking about how patient and gracious God was toward Paul. Here's the Apostle Paul time and time again, just in his darkened thinking, assuming that the best thing he can do is to try to destroy anything to do with Christianity, destroy anything to do with Christians, and anything he can do to try to hinder the work of Christ. And so he's out, you know, standing there witnessing Stephen getting killed and, and arresting all these different Christians. And so he thinks that's the best way. And yet God's light is greater than our darkness. And God's light was greater than Paul's darkness. There's grace that's greater than our sin. And none of us deserves to enjoy the light of God's fellowship and kindness, but God, out of his love, sent his son to bring light into this darkened world in my own darkened soul. It is God who's motivated by the glory of his own grace. It is God who chooses to extend unmerited favor to the undeserving rebels like you and me, and he makes the light of his glory all the more visible when he does this. His love descends down to the darkest depth. I don't know how far down you've reached. I don't know how much darkness is characteristic of your life, past, present, and ongoing, but his love will descend down to that depth. His grace brings the light of hope and forgiveness and peace and satisfaction to the soul that's darkened by guilt and doubt and sadness, despair and sorrow. I find it interesting that Psalm 139, David, in reflecting on God, realizes he can't go anywhere to escape from God. He says this, Lord, even the darkness is not dark to you. What's he saying? I might be in utter darkness in terms of where I'm located, but you still know where I am. Not beyond you and your knowledge and your grace. I want to just uh, make a one real quick point here before I move on to the last one. Some of you may have seen the headline in the Daily News, the New York Daily News, which this week has had some crazy headlines uh, in light of this uh, terrible tragedy in California. And the headline was this, big, big, bold letters. It said, God is not fixing this. In other words, that was the acknowledgement of some who, you know, there were some comments thrown around, we need to be praying for those who've been affected by this and, you know, all this kind of thing. Of course, the point of the story was that prayer is not enough. 
that we need to fix this problem. We need to get the government to do something else. And uh, therefore, they had their own specific recommendation of what that would be. But what, what, what my point is this. I just wanted to add this comment to the general gist. That's the way the world oftentimes thinks, the, the secular world we live in. It says, well, God is not involved. He, he, he's irrelevant to what's going on in these big problems. And all I just want to say is this. God is not indifferent to what's happening in the world because of the first advent in Christ coming. He is involved in fixing this messy, broken, depraved world we live in. And that's what we're longing for, are we not? He's not finished yet. He's coming back someday, and he will put things in their final place. So be encouraged. And lastly, God's heart, as I've meditated on this text, God's heart is for all types of people. People who dwell in darkness. It's not just one kind of person who dwells in darkness. There's all kinds of people who dwell in darkness. And so what I want to look today is think about is, point, is the third point there, letter C. I want to think about God's compassionate heart. You see, God's heart is never stained like our heart by prejudice, by racial animosity. It is Jesus who went beyond the man-made boundaries. When Jesus was here ministering in his ministry, he would cross over all these boundaries that people, oh, you don't do that. Culturally speaking, you don't ever, don't, don't speak to him. Oh, don't do that. Don't talk, don't spend time with them. Don't touch this person. All kinds of boundaries. He just stepped right over them. He didn't care. Boundaries of people who oftentimes were in great need. Now, I don't have time to expand this. This could be a whole other sermon here, but Matthew chapter 4, you might want to write some notes and just look at this later today. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, we read that Jesus withdrew into Galilee where it's very explicit that Matthew sees this as being fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. The idea of light now shining into darkness. I won't have time to get into all that, but anyway. And what's the point here of Matthew in Jesus going into Galilee? The point here is that Jesus is going into a place that's not predominantly Jewish. He's spending time among people who are Gentiles, non-Jews. And he's doing what? He's declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his ministry base is not in Jerusalem. It's in a predominantly non-Jewish area. What's the point here? The point is that Jesus did not segregate himself from the outsiders who were lost. He lived among them. He ministered among them. Those who sat in darkness, he saw with compassion that the fact that they lived in a land of death. And therefore what? He doesn't isolate himself from them. He doesn't revel in their deeds of darkness. But he sees that their hearts are darkened. He realizes that they're disinterested in him and his claims. It doesn't mean he doesn't still feel inclined to want to minister among them. And through his incarnational ministry, Jesus brought the light of the gospel to all sorts of people. Not just the people he had the most in common with. As I've thought about that, I've thought about so many people groups around this world. There are people groups within our own communities. There are the, the fatherless that we hear about with Long Island Youth Mentoring. Praise God for what they're doing. There are the people who are the, 
the cut-off ones who are single mothers and nobody's helping them. And there are the people who are uh, in all forms of addiction, feeling like there's no hope and help for them. But as I think about the people of the world, I think about even the greater needs of so much brokenness, so much darkness that's in our world. I just want to briefly touch on, I was reading about Thailand the other day. Thailand, a country in which they said it's a, there is so much darkness there. Why is that? Because the officials, the government leaders are so corrupt that they just allow and they sanction and they give permission to and enable there to be such a sex trafficking problem, it's hard to comprehend it. There are 100,000 male and 700,000 female prostitutes catering to various tourists, catering to the lusts of Thai people. They kidnap young girls. 20% of all Thai girls between the ages of 11 and 17 become involved in sex trafficking. There are 35,000 homeless children in Thailand, Bangkok. There's brokenness. There's such darkness. The heart of Christ is compassionate toward them and many other pockets of people who live in spiritual darkness and moral darkness around this world. And so I say to you, my friend, the needs are great, but God has given us hope in Christ and light. One final thing. This was not in your notes. Letter D, real quickly. Final thought came to my mind this morning. The last thing I want to say is that God is with us in times of darkness. Psalm 23. When you walk, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You say, where's darkness? The shadow. Walking through a shadow means what? There's an absence of light. I'm not sure what's around the corner. There's dangers that lurk ahead. The psalmist says, knowing that God is with us brings light to our temptation to be afraid and not able to cope in times of darkness that we go through ourselves. Much more could be said about that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we bow before you, you know our hearts. We can fool people, but we cannot fool you. Lord, some of us live in constant darkness of soul because we are cut off from you. We've never really come to you admitting our sin. We've never earnestly come acknowledging we need a Savior. We've never come to repent of our sin and to receive by faith all that Christ has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Lord, if there's someone here today who's in that condition, I pray that they would themselves flee from the prospect of having utter darkness, being cast into utter outer darkness, and to flee to Christ today, to come to the light, to know true forgiveness, to know true healing. And Lord, for some of us who know darkness of soul, even as a Christian, we pray that the gospel will bring us light today as we review the wonders of what you've promised to us in Christ and provided to us in Christ. We pray that those things will be brought home to our souls even during this time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.